Welcome to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Andrew. He was one of the coordinators of the now legendary reenactment events at the factory site in Ohio. He's also one of the coordinators of his World War II Soviet reenactment group. So without further ado, let's crack on with it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to yet another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here today. Uh, Lassa, unfortunately, couldn't make it on this episode. But the good news is, is that I'm not going to be doing this all by myself. I am going to have a special guest on that I'll be interviewing, who I'll introduce in just a minute. But first, I wanted to mention, I have started to post stuff on the Instagram. So... The Instagram account, we've had it for a while. We've got a bunch of followers on there, but we haven't really posted on it um, for very, very, like for a while. It's kind of fallen into disuse. I'm starting to use it again to get out information about um, upcoming episodes of the podcast and who the guests are going to be and, you know, post pictures of other reenactment related stuff. And so you can message me on there. Um, I think it's at the reenactors corner. I'll put like a link in the show notes so that you can um, check out the Instagram and, you know, give it a follow if if you like the show and if you're not already following. So having said that, I'm pleased today to announce that our guest is Andrew. Andrew um, is one of the coordinators for his World War II Soviet unit that he's in. He also was involved with running or helping to run the Stalingrad event at the factory site in Ohio all the years that that event has happened so far. So, Andrew, uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. It's nice to be on here. I guess the first thing is for uh, people who aren't aware of your background or and uh, kind of who you are, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into World War II reenacting and uh, what kind of stuff you're into now? Well, um, currently I am a coordinator for Military History Club Estochnik. I run Artel Red October, and I do coordinating for a bunch of different events. Um, I kind of started out as the kid that's really into history, and I grew up sitting on my grandpa's lap, listening to World War II stories, um, hearing him talk about landing at D-Day and Sicily and North Africa and meeting the Soviets at the Elbe. And I found a flyer when I was a little kid about um, Thunder Over Michigan, actually. And I thought, this is the coolest thing ever. I have to go to that. However many years later, I have like 10 impressions now and hosting events and have a small business and all this stuff. That's really cool. So you don't just do World War II, right? You have other historical reenactment impressions as well? Um, I'm... In some form or another, I have impressions for uh, Russia or the Soviet Union for almost all of the 20th century, and I have a couple other... Uh, I started off mostly as GI, and I have a, a basic German kit and a basic Yugoslavian kit. I guess it makes sense that you started off doing GI if you kind of got into World War II from listening to the war stories of your grandfather. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still really have a special place in my heart for GI reenacting, but it's... It's just something I haven't done very much lately. 
you know, I know you mostly, uh, the only times that you and I have ever been at the same event uh, were, I think, the Stalingrad events where you were doing Soviet. And uh, I know that you're really involved with the Soviet side of this hobby. How did you get interested in doing Soviet? Well, it kind of started off with my grandpa telling me stories about meeting the Russians at the Elba. He he was in a, a field artillery unit, and they actually shot a victory salute with the Russians. And he told me about how funny they were and just all sorts of little stories about how different they were. And uh, growing up, I always thought that I always read books about the Soviet Union and thought that you know, they were really similar to us, but they were really different. And it's kind of this forbidden culture that's behind this wall of propaganda that nobody knows much about, but they, they're they another superpower. And, well, they were another superpower. It, it was really interesting to me as a kid to juxtapose American and Soviet societies as this other superpower that we know nothing about that was just always fascinating to learn about in books because nobody talks to Russians from my small town. Nobody knows anything about them, but they're there and they're doing the same things that we're doing. Yeah, that uh, that's part of the appeal for me too. Um, as I mentioned before in the podcast, I do like a side impression of Soviet and it just is, uh, it really is kind of, or was for me for a long time, sort of a big question mark, you know, and to try to find out the truth about the, what these people experienced or even what their system was through all of the propaganda that I was like barraged with, like being in school at the very tail end of the Cold War um, has been has been really fun for me. So I definitely relate to that kind of thought process. And it's also um, kind of a, a study of human suffering, like the the Soviet Union and the Soviet people, they shed so much blood throughout their entire history and they achieve these great things but always at this at this great cost and it it, it kind of makes you humble in your own life like that these people lived through their entire village being killed around them and like the population of belarus and russia and ukraine like still hasn't recovered from world war ii even 80 years later yeah i, I like the uh the perspective that reenact that's part of what is the appeal of reenacting to me is that kind of perspective that you can apply to your everyday life if you immerse yourself in this different time and particularly a time like world war ii you know of such sacrifice such suffering um you know my own uh problems at work on monday are like they're not as big of a deal in comparison you know you know world war ii wasn't fun you freezing to death in a hole in Belarus in 1942 wasn't fun and you know immersion events you know they should be fun they should allow you to experience history but they should have elements that suck they should have the cold and the wet and it's not a funnel cake stand at the state fair you know there's a lot of different styles of World War II reenacting you know and I've certainly done uh, more than a few events that had more in common with a state fair than with uh, World War II probably um, you know and some people really like that reenactment style and I think that's and there are a lot there where I live particularly there are a lot of reenactors that seem to like that style um, but I, I agree with you I you know I like to do uh, more immersive stuff. You know, I like to do stuff that feels more real to me. One of my first events was this state fair type 
reenactment that a lot of reenactors would look down on and say, you know, oh, it's just some dumb public event. But as a little kid, that was the, like, as a kid, that was the coolest thing ever. And I had some amazing conversations with reenactors there. And I've been to events as a reenactor that I had really good conversations with the public. And I, I walked away feeling like I learned something. And I feel like they walked away feeling like they learned something. I'll tell you, it's I, I went for, I don't know, 15 years. Every time I did a public display event, it was as German. So you're the bad guy. You might encounter people who are like weirdly like sympathetic to the Nazis. You might encounter people who uh, think that you are sympathetic to the Nazis, you know, and kind of a range of things in between. And then in more recent years, I started to do some public display events as Soviet and found that it's like it was a totally different experience for me. I met a lot of people who had lived and grown up in the Soviet Union. They thought that um, what we were doing was really cool. You know, they were helpful and pointed out some areas where maybe we weren't doing the right thing from like a cultural perspective. I, I love doing the, those kind of events, warts and all, right? I mean, I understand, obviously, there are authenticity compromises. They're not my favorite kind of event, but uh, I, I, I can relate to people who, who want to do that kind of stuff. But on the topic of uh, immersion events, you were involved with uh, coordinating probably the most probably the most famous and most successful uh, real immersion type event that has happened in America in recent years, which was the uh, the Stalingrad events. I think the first one was in uh, 2018, right? There were three of them in total. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, we had uh, 2018, 2019, and 2020. I'm not involved with um, MHPG that runs the factory events anymore, but um, I can certainly talk about those three. You know, I'm really interested in hearing about your perspective on those events in general and what it was like kind of behind the scenes for you um, to run them. How how did those events really come about? Before I actually got involved, they had one or two previous um, events at a different factory site. But um, how the Youngstown site came about is one of our friends was really into urban exploring and he found this factory that looked really like the Barricade factory in Stalingrad. It looked like the classic 1930s American-Soviet industrial style, but it was about to be torn down. They were able to talk the landowner into pushing back, tearing down the building, and allowing us to host a reenactment there, or rent out the site for one reenactment there. And we kind of rushed to host this event, said you know, it's going to have a lot of problems. It's not going to run very smoothly, but we might be able to save this site for future events. And, you know, it was a hit. A ton of people came out and a ton of people loved the site. You know, it had its problems. It had a lot of authenticity problems, but it definitely left us in the position of where do we go from here after that first event? And there was talk about just having a run-of-the-mill tactical doing some scenario that allowed for or we, we had agreed that we wanted to do ETO um, for a fall event and we were discussing whether or not to do just a run-of-the-mill tactical with open authenticity and just kind of allow local units to come in as a fundraiser or we were debating doing trying to run an immersion event for Aachen or something and we kind of agreed that we were tired of the same old tactical events that 
kind of were focused on having fun rather than realism. And which, you know, those events are fun, but they don't capture what World War II was like very faithfully. You know, if you go into those thinking, this is World War II, it's, you know, they didn't take a lunch break and, and we wanted to do overnight digging in, focus on immersion, focus on authenticity, focus on living the life of a soldier. There was some controversy about the decision for the Stalingrad event specifically to do Stalingrad and not like Berlin because many established Soviet reenactors had like a 1943 uniform that wouldn't really be appropriate for a Stalingrad scenario. Um, you know, what what was kind of the reason for, for doing Stalingrad? Was it just because the factory itself was such a good fit for the scenario? We actually talked about this about switching to Berlin and we agreed like it's Stalingrad man like it's it's one of the largest battles I think it is the largest battle in human history it's or I believe it's the deadliest battle in human history and it's just such a focal point of you know study of World War II and it was such a cool site to do Stalingrad in and the draw of that scenario we decided was bigger than anything else even berlin yeah it really is an iconic thing and uh it's something that very few people in america probably had had the chance to try to recreate on any scale before i believe there was already a stalingrad event in california that i believe is still going on uh, i remember another controversy about stalingrad early on was kind of that uh you know although it one could argue about what like the term campaigner means to people or whether or not this event or any other event is or isn't a campaigner event. One of the things about Stalingrad was that, you know, people were not necessarily expected to show up with an established unit and fall in with their established unit. You guys kind of made uh, your own structure for the event. So some people were falling in under squad leaders or platoon leaders, maybe that they'd never met before. Um, you know, what, what was kind of your take about uh, the reason for doing that and what the reaction to it was? I was one of the big proponents of going with that system. And we, we kind of agreed on it that we wanted the event to feel like one combined military unit rather than a bunch of reenacting units. We didn't want reenactor unit politics and unit drama to affect cohesion as a as a big group. Well, how do you think that worked? Was that a success for you, uh, it, the way that you saw it? It created its own difficulties. Some other groups liked it. Some other groups didn't like it. We tried to keep the groups that didn't like it together and able to operate as their group. You know, with with reenactors, you can't make everybody happy. And that's that's one of the things we learned. Just like from my perspective as someone, I went, I didn't go to the first one. I went to the 2019 and 2020 events and I thought they were great successes. Everybody seemed to be having a wonderful time. And afterward, everybody that I talked to was super excited about it and, you know, looking forward to do more. Um, but it must have been, I mean, to do any event of that scale is going to have challenges. To do an event at a site like that is going to have its own inherent challenges, I think. And also, you guys were kind of doing some stuff that was different from a lot of ways that reenactment had been typically done, probably for most of the people who attended those events. So, um, and that I've got to think must have had its own challenges as well. So, 
you know, what, what were like some of the challenges that you guys faced and had to deal with when you were uh, helping to run those events? There was a lot of networking. I had to put out a lot of small fires and, you know, getting, getting people to work together that really didn't like each other on a personal level happened quite a few times. And, you know, I'd say that we were able to overcome a lot of that. I mean, there was there was tons of drama early on where, um, you know, there was even like a Facebook page that was um, kind of like, you know, dedicated to uh, directing hatred toward the event that you were doing. And uh, there were some personalities from the reenactment scene that were coming out and being critical of one decision or another. But I think, you know, ultimately you guys went on to, um, you know, really have a successful thing. Um, you know, what, what do you think kind of if, if you were to do something like this in the future, and I know that you're not uh, involved in the organization that ran those events anymore, but just, you know, kind of looking back on it and what you learned about it, um, you know, what, what I guess would you do differently next time to try to defuse that kind of stuff? Or do you think that things like that are just inevitable and have to kind of just be taken as they come? Or, or what do you think about it? Um... Some of that is inevitable. I mean, you can't make everybody happy, especially not reenactors. Um, but I think that, especially early on, we kind of did a could have done a better job utilizing some of the assets we had available to us in in, in terms of people. Like I feel like there was there was underappreciated potential that kind of went to waste with some people i feel what about the site itself the uh for people who are listening who didn't actually go to this site just to kind of like paint a picture of it this was this uh really big massive factory building with three different wings i think it was like a three-story building and you could go up on the roof um and it was kind of like a sprawling sort of industrial wasteland around it with some other outbuildings and stuff, one of which was utilized for the event. I mean, the uh, the challenges that you guys must have faced with trying to make that extremely unsafe environment as safe as it kind of could be in that situation and also um, trying to make it look as realistic as possible, trying to make a dil extremely dilapidated 20th century American factory building look like something that could have been in the Soviet Union. Um, you know, what was, what was it like trying to do all that work? Well, the fun part about that factory building is that it was designed by, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, it was designed by the same architect or in the same style pioneered by the same architect that designed the Cherzhinsky tractor factory in Stalingrad. So a lot of the five-year plan Soviet factories were designed and built in the United States by American architects and literally shipped to the Soviet Union. Um, so that factory in particular looked a lot like Barikadi and Zerzhinsky and um, Red October factories. Now, it was dilapidated and full of graffiti and trash, and it just took a lot of elbow grease and the part of other coordinators and, my, and myself to, you know, clean it up and make it look accessible, I think, or make it look historically correct. I feel like reenactors kind of didn't realize how many work weekends we put into it and how much stuff we did. You know, guys walking on pathways that the previous event was 
a gigantic pile of rubble and just not realizing it. But yeah, it just took a lot of elbow grease. What were, what were your feelings like going into the first um, Stalingrad event that you guys did in 2018? Did you think that it was going to be a success? Were you confident that you were going to be able to provide people the experience that they wanted? The first event was kind of a go-for-broke thing. Um, because the site owner at that point was thinking about tearing down the building, we really just needed it to be successful that first time so we could secure the building. Um, I had no idea it would get as big as it did. I expected it to be a lot smaller. I was astonished that Soviet reenactors came from as far as they did for it. I was really excited to be a part of it. Well, by the last event that happened there in uh, 2020, you know, bef- which was the last event that a lot of people went to before the COVID pandemic uh, began, um, you were the overall Soviet commander, right? Mm-hmm. I was the overall Soviet well, commander for 2019 and 2020. In 2018, the overall Soviet commander uh, wasn't able to go to the event last minute. <laughs> wow. So it was kind of thrust upon you then. Mm-hmm. So I, that event kind of grew a little bit over the years, right? With the third one being the, the biggest one to date? Um, the 2020 event was a little bit smaller than the 2019 event because of COVID um, in actual attendance. In registration, I think we had 20 or so more Soviets and 30 or so more Germans. Which one of those events was your favorite to do? Uh, 2020 by far. Um, I think that we were really, really on to something in the 2020 event. I mean, I had a, I had a list of changes that I wanted to make, but I think that that one turned out like 90, 95% of where I wanted it to be. This, for people who maybe didn't go or aren't really familiar with what we're talking about, that event happened like, it was what? It was like, uh, was it the middle of March of 2020? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was right in the beginning. The coronavirus pandemic was like, I don't think it had been kind of declared to be a global pandemic at that time, or I think it was like declared to be a global pandemic while we were at the event. And some of the huge changes that happened very quickly for us here in America with, um, you know, uh, I don't know, plexiglass barriers going up at stores and one-way aisles in supermarkets and no toilet paper and all of those things. A lot of that stuff happened while we were at that event. To me, you know, it, it kind of detracted from my event a little bit because I found it really hard sometimes to get into the mindset of World War II knowing that this like crazy unprecedented thing was happening in the real life 2020 world that I was really in Um, but some other people that I people in my own unit people that I reenacted with they felt that it kind of augmented the event because you had this kind of real feeling of impending doom or misfortune or concern about your future or whatever because of the coronavirus pandemic but emotions that you could kind of get into the headspace of being a German soldier in Stalingrad who's maybe been encircled by the Soviets and you know is away from home and doesn't know what's going on at home uh, what about what was your take on it did you think that it made the event better or uh, or what for the most part I was a little bit too busy to pay too much attention to it but yeah it, it definitely left a feeling of let's put everything into this event because I don't know what's going to happen next week. So yeah, I might as well focus on making this event as good as it can be because, you know, 
the police could come and cordon off the city or something or whatever early COVID rumors we believed were true. Right. Those things seem absurd now, but I definitely was concerned that they were going to not let people go through uh, state lines, you know, or that we were all going to get just we were going to be living in that factory basement for, you know, the foreseeable future. This was like a, a potentially uh, believable thing in those weird times. Yeah. Um, I remember being really concerned that we had people coming from all across the country to this reenactment and I said oh man we're gonna find out that someone's like COVID positive at the reenactment and they're gonna quarantine us all in the factory or something like that that would have been insane but uh let me ask you this um were there things that you you personally you know kind of wanted to try out or maybe that you had a chance to try out at those events that you thought would be more successful than it was I mean were there things that uh kind of didn't work out the way that you would wanted them to or hope them to we never really got a good solution for wound cards. We experimented around at, I believe, yeah, starting with Aachen, we experimented around with using wound cards for simulating like the medical, the medics taking you back to the first aid station and taking you back, or to simulate like a wound ambulatory system so that you would go to your medic for minor wounds, you'd go all the way back to your side's field hospital for more severe wounds. And we never got a system that I liked. We never got a system that we could get the majority of reenactors to follow. What other kind of like challenges did you guys face? I know it must have been, I mean, besides like the the infrastructure of the site, the physical labor that you guys put in, um, you know, what were the other difficult aspects of running or helping to run those factory events? It's impossible to get all two or 300 reenactors that are going to read multiple pages of, you know, this is how you do this. This is what we want you to do in this situation. There was a big conflict of personalities of dudes arguing in the comment sections of oh it should be done this way oh it should be done this way and a lot of misinformation being spread about and it's hard to balance reenactors expectations of what an authenticity check is like if they haven't gone to an event that enforces authenticity we had people like literally concerned that we were going to make them strip to check their underwear and foot wraps at a reenactment to make sure that they're wearing you know correct red army ones the overall like amount of buzz that this event generated on Facebook was probably uh, unprecedented in terms of like uh, just the sheer amount of posts about it, the hype that built up for these events at the factory. And I, I remember you being, you know, on the Internet a lot, talking about this stuff, answering questions, doing promotion. Um, you know, what was this something that just kind of happened organically or did you have like a strategy for promoting this event online that you used to help build up all of that excitement? Um, it kind of just happened organically. Like I realized that social media and like a word of mouth, especially within reenactors is really, really powerful. And most reenactors share events in one of two ways. 
and they're both photographs. It's either screenshots or event photos. They'll either take a screenshot of the you know event page or a post about the event page, or they'll send you a link to it, or they'll they'll post pictures or share pictures somewhere of their kit at the event. We took promo pictures for all of our events so that reenactors could, you know, screenshot the pictures and know what to expect in terms of authenticity, know what to expect in terms of the background and what the site is like. We had dedicated event photographers that were really encouraged to take as many photos as possible in order for reenactors to keep their phones in their pockets and be able to focus on enjoying the event, but still have cool impression photos to post all over Facebook to give us basically free advertising. The cool event photos is how they remember the event and how they go back on Facebook and say, man, that was a cool event. I want to go next year. Whether you guys like did it intentionally or not, it was like genius how it was done. I mean, it, it really, uh, I think a lot of other events that probably could be a lot bigger, you know, could probably take a page out of your playbook. And uh, if they promoted the events the way that those factory events were promoted, I think it would develop you know, more people would go. It would create more hype online and more people would go. Just kind of scanning groups for discussion about the event and being able to stop any misinformation and, you know, spread excitement and say, hey, you know, we're also doing this and get people excited at the, at the grassroots level in, in Facebook comment sections or in, in, you know, help page posts is, is, was really big and it got a lot of people excited and it got a lot of people kind of into the network of the people that went above and beyond and did specialty impressions or or did a job that really improved the event for those around them and and that grassroots approach and talking to people and comment sections and and private messages uh and just networking it it's all about networking uh, I saw you make a comment one time on Facebook uh, alluding to basically the number of people that you knew personally who had bought Soviet impressions just to do the Stalingrad event. I mean, it was uh, some like large number of people. Is that is, th- is that really true? A significant number of the people in our unit started their Soviet impression because of Stalingrad and because of pictures that they'd seen of the event, because of, you know, hype that they'd seen on social media about it. And unfortunately, a lot of the people that built the impression for the event have kind of petered out of the impression. Uh, out of the impression, I've seen quite a few people sell Soviet kits recently because of Stalingrad not happening. But it definitely brought a lot of really, really dedicated Soviet reenactors into the impression that aren't going anywhere. Yeah, I think that speaks to kind of the power of what a reenactment event can do. Is that it can an event that is really good and that people see pictures of and that creates a lot of conversation and a lot of energy like that can get people kind of off the fence and get people involved in reenacting and get them to do impressions that they haven't done before. I think that's really cool. But I was going to ask you about this later, but since you brought it up, I noticed that too, that I've seen a bunch of people selling Soviet kits lately. Um, For many years, at least in New England anyway, I felt like Soviet World War II reenacting was the only part of World War II reenacting that was still growing. Like where I live, there used to be tons and tons of GI reenactors, and now I feel like I hardly ever see those guys anymore. There used to be a bunch of really large German groups, and now 
there's probably still the same amount of groups, but they don't seem to be as big as they used to be. I mean, even before COVID. Um, you know, what do you think about Soviet reenacting in general? Is it still growing in your region? Is it growing in the United States? We have, I believe, five people coming out for their first event for our uh, July Barbarossa event. Um, five new people that just built their kit to do Soviet. So as far as we can tell, it's still growing, or at least it hasn't stopped growing. Um, it's certainly taken a hit because of Stalingrad, but I don't think that that's going to spell disaster for the impression. I think that I've seen other people selling impressions at a faster rate. I, I think I see a lot of people selling SS impressions lately. Yeah, I can I could see reasons why in the current uh, socio-political climate, people who have uh, SS uniforms might be reconsidering their uh, desire to own that stuff or whatever, for better or for worse. And, um, and I mean, that's how World War II reenacting is in general. I mean, certain impressions are certainly more suited to the current climate than others. And I mean, Soviet takes a hit too. I've had a lot of people that were interested in the impression and just said like, I don't really want pictures of me dressed like a communist on Facebook. Yeah, we lost, um, we don't have a lot of guys in my group. My reenactment group is fairly small, but uh, we've lost one guy so far who just said, listen, um, you know, in light of everything that's going on in the country and how, you know, social media and politics, the interplay of all these things, I just can't do it anymore. You know, which I, and I'm sure that, there are a lot, a lot of people who are in that situation. I mean, what do you, what do you think about World War II reenacting in general? As somebody who does other time periods as well, do you think that World War II reenacting is going to continue to resonate with people the way it has in the past, or do you think it's going to change? I don't think as a hobby that it's going anywhere. I mean, this we have such a large community and such a large community of people that don't care if everybody else thinks that World War II reenacting is you know acceptable I mean I think that you're still going to have even if you know wearing a World War II German uniform is outlawed you're still going to have reenactors that go hang out in each other's houses in their kit regardless of political climate of course the other side of that coin though is that um it does take a certain number of people on some level to make certain things possible, you know, and I, I do worry about the possibility of it, um, you know, if it gets significantly smaller than it is now, there are some things that we can do that maybe won't be as possible. I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm kind of uh, just sort of speculating a little bit. It's certainly none of us can really predict uh, what the future is going to look like. When I got into the hobby... I didn't know anybody that did Soviet reenacting. All the all the events that I went to, maybe there were a couple Soviet reenactors at the bigger display events. I think it has a lot to do with public events. I think a lot of our perception of German and GI being quieter and Soviet being louder is because of public events. Because it's a lot easier to do ETO at a public event because the people relate to it more. And, uh, and a lot of Western Front units do a lot more public events versus Eastern Front units. You know, it's it's my perception, too, that uh, GI reenacting is, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if it's in decline, but it's certainly, 
doesn't have as much of a share of the attention that this hobby gets as it used to. I mean, uh, what what do you think the reasons are for might be for that? There's just not a lot of excitement in GI reenacting lately. Their community kind of doesn't work together as much, I guess I'd say. There are, you know, inter-unit group chats and inter-unit discussions, but a lot of the GI units kind of don't like to talk to each other. They like to do their own impression and just talk to their guys about their own impression, and they don't post as widely. The nice thing about Soviet and the nice thing about German is that if you have a basic German or a basic Soviet impression, you can go to more events authentically than as a GI. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the group, the reenactment group that you're a coordinator for now. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Um, what? How long have you guys been a group? It's Voinal Istorycheski Club Istochnik. It stands for Military History Club Source. We normally just call it Istochnik. Um, we've only been a thing for a few years, I believe two or three years. One of our unit members was friends with a bunch of the different authentically minded Soviet units in the Midwest. Um, we kind of had the, what used to be the 11th, we had the 50th, we had a group in Ohio, we had a group in Michigan, we were friends with the Red Guard in on the East Coast, and we kind of just said, hey, let's make a group chat and work together as units for big events. And that kind of turned into, let's make this into a coordination chat for various units and various individuals that want to work together for big events and also like the individual groups can do their own smaller events and it, it's it's kind of become a unit on its own and it's lost a lot of the form of the smaller groups but the 50th is very much still its own thing and you know we have a very good working relationship with all of these smaller groups and come together as a whole what uh what kind of events do you guys do um, we do all kinds of events. We have a couple public display events coming up in, yeah, in Illinois. Um, we have an immersion event coming up in July that we're hosting. We've done like HRS tacticals. We do SFE tacticals. We're trying to do some more display events. It sounds cool. It sounds like a good schedule. Uh, I, I saw some pictures of an event that you guys did last year in the fall. Um, yeah, it was at the that was hosted by us and SSTK in I believe it's Eureka, Eureka Missouri, um, called Demyansk, and that was a little immersion tactical that we put together with them. It looked like a lot of fun. How was that event? They didn't tell us that the hill was so big until we got there, but other than that, it was it was a blast. Um, we dug in in kind of skirmish trenches opposing a. Uh, German fortified position. You know, the the event was more focused on living the life of a soldier, and I felt that we accomplished that. Platoons, that's something we kind of had lacked in previous events and weren't really able to do at all at Stalingrad because of the nature of the combat there. And it was um, it was a good event to put into practice some basic Soviet platoon tactics. Yeah, uh, I remember I saw some pictures of some, like, dug-in positions that... Uh... I guess the event hosts had, had built, right, some trenches or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, the event hosts and uh, SSTK had gone out and 
dug a bunch of positions for us, and there were other positions left over from previous events they'd had at the site. How far of a trip was that for you to go to that event? For me, I think that was eight hours, and we uh, we carpooled, me and some other unit members. Definitely fun to take a road trip like that. You know, you really get to uh, get to know the people that you're riding with, I find. It's always a blast, kind of you know, turning on the 90s Russian punk music and driving down the highway with all your friends. Let's talk a little bit about that event, the um, event, I guess, in June or July, the Barbarossa event that you guys are doing. I see a bunch of people posting on the internet about that, and that's going to be really interesting. That's a sort of a, a battle or a period of the war that most people probably have never uh, seen reenacted before on any scale. Um, what are your plans for that event? Um, Our plans are to portray... Not the initial combat from Barbarossa, but the first wave of reserve divisions rushed to the front in the beginning of July. Um, the actions that we're portraying outside of Smolensk are almost to the day on the 80th anniversary. We're trying to portray um, a, just a Soviet motor rifle company of the 161st Rifle Division encountering the German spearheads outside of Smolensk and, you know, digging in and trying to fight to the last man and getting overwhelmed by, by I guess, German armored superiority, because we, we are actually facing uh, enemy armored cars at that event. Do you think that's going to wind up being an annual event too, or is it just something you're doing just one time for the 80th anniversary? I would love to do that event um, every year. The site hosts have been really helpful and really, really welcoming for us to host an event there. What else do you guys have that you are planning on uh, attending for 2021? Personally, I'm going to the Case Blue event in West Virginia that's set in uh, the prelude to Fall Blau in 1942. Um, I'm also going to a Afghanistan event hosted by Falcon. We're trying to do a Timeline of the Red Army event at the Cantini uh Museum of the First Infantry Division, uh, if that public event happens with COVID. I'm going to try and make it out to whatever events are still happening. Well, so what do you think uh, reenacting is going to look like after this COVID situation is finally over? Do you think that there are people who are just dying to do whatever they can and that as soon as there are more events that they can do, we'll see uh, you know, maybe even an increase in numbers? Or do you think that there will be people who took a break from it and realized they enjoyed not doing it. Like, what do you think? What do you, what's your prediction? I've certainly talked to a lot of people who are dying to get to events that are wanting to go to anything just to get out to events. I have noticed that a lot more events are like immersion focused since COVID and that we we're seeing a really big trend towards tactical events and small private immersion focused events a lot of the public events that had to close down because of covid probably aren't coming back i think that a lot of the small local events are not going to be able to continue death blow because of covid i mean a lot of events that didn't have a ton of budget and maybe lost their deposits for because of covid just aren't going to come back. That's kind of true of a lot of small businesses and small venues and things like that. I think that the political climate is definitely 
scaring a lot of people out of public events, and I wouldn't be surprised that if I see a lot less German reenactors at public events from now on. And you know, I'll be honest. I, definitely, there were a lot of events that I've done in the past in the in public in my German uniform that if I had the opportunity to do them now, there's no way I would do it. You know, events, I used to do events, some of them were air shows, some of them were events at public parks, or or other stuff like that. And some of the people who would come to the events would know, you know, they would be coming there specifically to see the reenactors. But other people would be going there just to have a day at the park or to see the airplanes or whatever, and, you know, suddenly be confronted with World War II reenactors, including me with a swastika on my clothes. And, you know, for years, that was like, no big deal. I mean, I'm here doing a historical display as part of this reenactment as part of this event. But now, I mean, I just, I'm going to, for the most part, restrict my own uh, attendance at public displays to like events that take place at museums or at legitimate historical sites where all of the people going there know when they're going in that I'm going to be seeing something here where the context is historical um, and that that's something that they want to see. Maybe there's something that they're, they're paying to see, you know, to just kind of be out there and run into people who don't know what they're, what they're getting themselves into and seeing me with this, not basically Nazi regalia on, right? In their in their eyes, um, yeah, definitely. There's that's more of a risk than I feel like I want to take. Yeah, and that's that's certainly something that I've taken into consideration. I mean, I it is unfortunate that I've kind of had to not take pictures of myself and Kit, and certainly not post those pictures on social media because of the fear of potential repercussions. You mentioned at the beginning of the podcast uh, that you're like running a like what like a reproduction company you're selling a product or what um, is that about it i just started doing that a few months ago actually um currently we're reproducing uh world war one russian gas masks and the ephemera with that and we're also doing some commissions to hand embroider soviet tobacco bags but i have a bunch of other projects that are in the works just kind of got it started it's uh artel red october uh, I'll make sure we put a link to that in the show notes for people who want to check it out. Sure thing. I guess uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, since we're kind of running out of time, uh, you know, what are your what are your ideas about what would make reenactment better? Do you think that there are ways for reenactment to improve for participants? Do you think it's kind of just is what it is, or or what's your take on that? I think that a lot of reenactors have a difficult time overcoming their egos and ability to work as an ability to work with other people down to like even even basic interactions on Facebook I think that a lot of problems in the hobby could be solved by people just you know being nicer to each other and being more open to hear what the other person has to say and if you're offering criticism to someone offering it as constructive criticism instead of being a dick to them on a Facebook comment. As a community, we're all coming together to recreate World War II and recreate what history was like. And, you know, everybody's going to dis- disagree on their interpretations and how that should be done. But remembering we all have a common goal and kind of trying to work together as opposed to having an us versus them mentality with other units and other impressions and other groups. I think that that's 
the biggest improvement that could be had in the hobby. Yeah, I, I think that's a great idea. Uh, you know, I, I, I would love to see it, but I guess, uh, I guess time will tell, you know, I, that's one of the things I've struggled with. I'm like, uh, everyone says I'm a jerk on the internet. Uh, I think maybe that part of that might be like where I'm from, like, New England, maybe people here are just jerks. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I mean, I have quite a reputation in as well. So, well, so, to some extent, like Soviet in general, at one time there was like some real acrimony, right? Like there were, I, it, I'm, I was kind of an outsider looking in on some of this stuff, but there was definitely some like blood sports style, you know, like angry personalities, and um, in more recent times, I think a lot of that has kind of fallen by the wayside, and I. I think it has probably improved some, you know, or at least, you know, like at least in the groups that I'm looking at, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the offenses on the internet are perceived rather than intended. And I think that a lot of the people that were going out there to say, I'm so much better than everybody else in Facebook comment sections have kind of realized that you don't gain anything by being a jerk to other people on the internet. And that, it makes it really affects your networking and ability to do cool things in the hobby. Like absolutely, I think that a lot of groups, and certainly our group, um, have really pushed against people doing that and pushed against people starting these big Facebook arguments and pushed against dumb drama. There has definitely been, you know, in Facebook. Uh, and, and kind of elsewhere uh, in the reenactment online sphere, a lot of drama that I think it's, I mean, there's, I mean, I've, I've seen drama in reenactment in real life. I've been part of drama and reenactment in real life. And, um, you know, but Facebook and social media have a way of creating, creating enemies where there really shouldn't be any and, Social media in the like grand scheme of things is still a relatively new thing, you know, and maybe once everyone kind of like figures it out a little bit more and calms down a little bit, then we, we won't have stuff like that in the future, hopefully. Or it could get worse. Yeah, it, it, it could get a lot worse. Well, uh, Andrew, it has been really great talking to you. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I like your perspective on this stuff. It's definitely really good food for thought. So uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciated the you know ability to have this discourse and stuff. Cool. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Thank you very much to the Patreon supporters. We really appreciate your support. And uh, to everybody out there, I will see you in the field. Before we go, you may want to check out Feller Kopf over at german-worldwar2.com, that is german-ww2.com, uh, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off, off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout. Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.